Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti. I hope you're feeling very well today. Well, there's been a great deal of talk this week about new treatments for Alzheimer's disease. And it's great to see because for so long it's felt so much like a long goodbye. In this podcast, I'm delighted to learn about new hopeful drugs and treatments for Alzheimer's from Dr. Sharon Rogers, who's worked on developing treatments for neurotransmission for most of her career. We are breaking new ground in science every day, especially in Alzheimer's disease. We know so much more now than we did 30 years ago. And so you have to make sure that the thinking that goes into developing drugs is following along with that. You don't forget the old lessons, you build on them and you learn from them. The effect on women from Alzheimer's is huge. More women suffer from it. Two thirds of Alzheimer's patients are women. More women are carers. 70% of unpaid caregivers for Alzheimer patients are women. And if women take time out to care for a loved one, they lose out on income and often lose their spot on their career path ladder. Dr. Rogers says society and economies, as well as individuals, will benefit in really practical ways if new treatments can be provided to patients. Cost-wise, there's a socio and economic benefit to keeping patients functional longer. Dr. Rogers has dedicated her life to this area of pharmacology research, and she's carved a great career in pharmacology and has built teams and challenged ways of doing things that have worked. This has led to successes, which she puts down to several factors, including resilience, using failure to learn and go forward, building on lessons from the past, taking chances on others who think differently, staying focused on the big picture and celebrating every achievement with all the development team is one of her key leadership skills. You know, you don't have one leader out front taking all the glory. You bring everyone from your team up on the celebration float with you. Stay with us for an insightful look at what is being done for patients living with Alzheimer's and for amazing lessons in leadership with Dr. Sharon Rogers. Uh, well, Dr. Rogers, when I first saw your connection to Aricept, it was a drug I knew well. I wanted to talk to you straight away as uh, my own late mother was on it for a few years before she died. She had Alzheimer's. Um, and live to a great old age. I always say, thanks to the drug, we actually got her back for a few months, you know, back to her normal self. It didn't last long, but it was it was wonderful just to have those uh, few months with her. Um, I see the, the impact on the lives of women, not only as patients with Alzheimer's, uh, but particularly carers, most of whom are women. I know a lot of men do it as well, but, you know, it's, it's primary caring usually falls to women. Yes. World over. Um, so I see... Women put their careers on hold. I know the impact on other family members and on relationships. So I'm always interested to hear about new approaches to treatment. So I'm really interested in this, um, um, how do you pronounce it, Amira AD treatment. What is it and how does it work? Okay, just the name of the company is Amiriad. The last two capital letters are to emphasize Alzheimer's disease because that is our major focus. The new drug is meant to be to layer on to available treatments to sort of amplify what they do. So for example, since your mother was on Aricept, uh, you know that you, you had her back almost exactly where she was for a few months. 
But actually, when you take away the drug and you see that the disease has progressed, you find out you really had a little bit more than that. The disease is going to continue to go on, but patients on drugs like Aricept will continue to function above their biological level just because we're increasing neurotransmission, which is a good thing to do. So Aricept uses one pathway to do that. It protects the neurotransmitter from being degraded. What our drug does, which is called AD101, our drug actually works because you have presynaptic and postsynaptic neurons. The neurotransmitters come from the presynaptic neuron. Our drug actually works through some small channels on the surface of that presynaptic neuron and, and prompt it to release more neurotransmitter. So it's releasing more, more neurotransmitter to go to the other side and perpetuate neurotransmission, and Aricept is protecting it. So in this case, Aricept's not just protecting basal or, or normal release. You're amplifying the release to put out lots more neurotransmitter. And then with Aricept protecting it, you're really bumping up the neurotransmission. What is neurotransmission? Just to get to some basic, it's just the links between brain cells, is it? Maybe just yes. tease that. What is it? That's the best way to put it. Every Everything in our body that talks to each other, our cells, our neurons, it's all done through biochemical means. And sometimes these means are associated with an electrical charge and many in the brain are associated with an electrical charge. Sometimes it's just chemical transmission, but that's exactly what they mean. we mean is cellular communication. Why do women primarily get it? Is it that they just live longer so they're more likely to get it? Or why is it a disease that affects more women than men? Well, it's interesting to answer that question because you have to go to a sort of a broader sociological perspective on women's lives, especially women's lives when Alzheimer's disease was initially being diagnosed and looked at as a problem. Alzheimer's disease is highly dependent upon social interaction, work stimulation, mental stimulation. All these things keep our neurons active and functional. In the past, when women were more in the home, less active, less stimulation, less demand on on their brains for neurotransmission, that lack of stimulation allowed the symptoms of the disease to present themselves earlier. And so it was definitely the case where around 60% of subjects in clinical trials were women and about 40% men. When you look at the demographics of women entering clinical trials now, women and men, you'll see that it's getting closer to parity because over the last few decades, we have had more women in the workplace, more women who have valid active social lives that enrich them. Uh, women are just doing more there. They're in the news more there constantly doing and achieving. And this is very good for our brain activity. You'll find in a lot of cases with the brain, it's it's like your muscles, use it or lose it. If you sat in a chair all day, every day and never got up, and then you decided you wanted to go out and take a run down the street, that would be a gruesome undertaking for your body. It's the same thing for your brain. If you've been more homebound, not had a lot of social stimulation, not necessarily aware of the news, your duties and your function are, are sort of limited into a, a small group of activities that you do every day, your brain is not going to be as resilient. It's not going to be able to stretch when you need it. 
So that's really good news for working moms who may be feeling guilty about being away from their children for a while or away from their caring years. It's actually good for you to go out and work, good for your brain and your own long-term health and probably good for your kids as well. I, exactly. I agree with that 100%. I, I agree it's good for the children in a number of ways, including encouraging their own resilience and independence. Um, you say one of the objectives is to extend, uh, you know, for, from, for your drug, to extend the time a patient has at home in a familiar environment and so delay the time before they might need to go into a nursing home or a, a long-term care setting. Is the goal then about the quality of life? Absolutely. Absolutely, because uh, patients who are able to stay in the home definitely have a much better quality of life. And when they can stay in the home and maintain some functionality, that's better for their immediate caregivers. And when they can stay at home, be more functional, that means less skilled nursing care needing to go into the home, delaying time to nursing home placement, which is hard on the patients. I mean, most patients do die in a nursing home. I can't even begin to express how much I dislike this component of it, because when you take an Alzheimer patient away from things that are familiar to them, there is a decompensation that occurs. And you can see patients go downhill quickly once they get to the nursing home stage. So cost-wise, there's a socio and economic benefit to keeping patients functional longer. There was a great paper by a group uh, by Prados is the author's name at all that was published just last year, and they were looking at what is the what is the benefit, the socioeconomic benefit of maintaining functional capability in Alzheimer's patients, and over the next twenty years, and this number is going to knock your socks off if if you're wearing socks. Um, this number is $2.5 trillion over the next 20 years. And that money is realized, one, in lower cost of care, skilled nursing care, nursing homes, delaying time to nursing homes, but also a decrease in disability-adjusted life years. So by definition, a decrease in disability-adjusted life years is an increase in productive life years. How you define what's productive is going to be highly subjective, but for these patients and their families, you know, I, I defy anyone to try to say that's not a fabulous benefit. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you. Um, I have one observation that uh, I have a good Ukrainian friend who's staying in Ireland while the war is on. And she was saying the one thing that struck her about living here in Ireland is the amount of old people that we have, that in Ukraine, people, because of quality of life and other issues, people just didn't live that long, like 65, 70 is considered really old. Whereas, you know, it's Ireland is a bit like UK and the United States, you have people living quite normally into their 80s and 90s. So we must be doing something right. You must be very passionate about this because you've been working in this whole area for a long time. What sparked your own interest in neurodegenerative diseases and, and treatments for them? Well, I came about it in a sort of circuitous manner. Um, I was always interested in cell molecular communication and all these complex linkages in, in, in why our body does what it does every single day you can't ask for anything that is more exciting to study, knowing how things work and why they work. And one thing I used to tell students when, when I would be lecturing in the lecture hall is that if ourselves and the reactions had voices that were talking, you would feel like you were 
in the Super Bowl at a last minute touchdown where some team won and the audience is going crazy, or you were at a large soccer tournament where the entire stadium is absolutely going wild. All that noise that's going on in our bodies every single nanosecond of every day. It's phenomenal, isn't it? We are we are amazing critters. And so that was always my fascination. And I went into uh, pharmacology and drug development because it teaches you all about or you learn all about when you manipulate any one of those pathways, what happens downstream? What other things happen? Because every reaction in our body is related to some other reaction. And how do you selectively tinker? with this communication in a way that's going to be beneficial. And as I was doing this work for with my first company and second company, uh, I ended up doing quite a lot of neuro work because both of those companies had a strong neuro franchise. And when you start looking at that part of, of pharmacology in general, it gets exceedingly fascinating. I can't decide which I like most sometimes, immunology or neurology, but I do lean toward neurology because it's easier to see the results. It's easier to see that. And that strikes a chord of compassion in any person who does get to experience that. So uh, when I went to Azai, uh, Azai was a startup in the US. A lot of people don't aren't aware of that because it just seems like such a big multinational company. But they were small. They were about the number five, six pharma company in Japan. And the CEO, Haruo Naito, he had a broad um, ambition to be a multinational pharmaceutical company. And he believed that in order to do that, he had to go to the U.S. to what he called the medicine chest of the world and establish the company and get products into uh, Western European and U.S. North American markets. And, you know, that is clearly the way you have to do these things. So they were a startup and I was actually the sixth person hired at that company. Mm -hmm. So I was coming at that time from another large cap company and going to this very small company, but it was a startup with deep pockets and it was a startup with a pipeline. And one of the reasons why I went to this company is they had this drug in their pipeline called E2020. And there were other drugs similar to that being developed. They were not being successful. The studies were failing. But I would look at the characteristics and, and say from my own training and experience, but this should work. <laughs> Hypothetically speaking, th this should work. You know, maybe it's the approach is, is not exactly fine tuned. Maybe the signals are tricky and you have to make sure the studies are designed in, in a very rigorous manner, but this should work. And I still remember to this day, my friends, uh, especially my women friends, since there weren't that many of us in pharma saying, Sharon, you're going to ruin your career if you do this. You have a great career where you're at, you're getting some super publications, you're on the podium regularly talking about work. And I just kept saying, yes, but this should work. And so I went in part to, to learn how to stretch myself and learn how to work in a Japanese-based environment. I'd worked with Swiss and Americans. This was an opportunity to work with another culture and to learn their approaches to business and science and, and healthcare. And also because there was this challenge lurking in the wings. 
And so they promised me that if their proton pump inhibitor for gastroesophageal reflux disease, if I could get it off clinical hold and back into a solid development track, that I could work with E2020. So I did that for them. That wasn't easy. I was at one point uh, schlepping microscope slides to the world's leading expert in a certain cell type in Pavia, Italy, to get him to read those slides so we could get off clinical hold and move the project forward. But still, you know, you learn from those, those efforts too. But I did that and they said, okay, you can have it, decide how you want to do it. We're not going to interfere too much except maybe on dose, because we, we we think that can always be troublesome. So they let me have at it. Mm-hmm. And I've been prepping for that for about a year and a half, trying to see what people were doing, uh, why they weren't successful, who were the main people talking about how to do this work. And if I listened to what they said, would I have the same result and be unsuccessful? Or would I need to think about it a little bit differently? and bring just a different spin to it, never uh, discarding the lessons of the past, but building on the lessons for the past. So and a lot so, of tenacity and a lot of nitpicking and attention to detail. You know, you have to do all of that, yes, but never forgetting the big picture. And, yeah. and that's really what I did. But I met so many great people doing this. And the people who I met were the ones who I thought were going to be great minds for the future. Wonderful. You say you work with an old female team. Where would, Did that come from those early collaborations? What I would say is it was organic in the way that this came about, but it comes back to the same principle of looking for people with a certain amount of uh, fearlessness, substantial amount of subject matter expertise, and people who don't feel confined to go along the same path as everyone else has gone in just because that's the way that it's been. People who are willing to accept a bit of criticism. Um, Are there men who do that same uh, process? Yes. And I hired some fantastic men for the company too. And so it really comes down to the subject matter expertise and how willingness my impression of their willingness to think a little bit differently. It doesn't have to be way outside the box, but it's just not necessarily taking the status quo and assuming that that's the way to go forward because we are breaking new ground in science every day, especially in Alzheimer's disease. We know so much more now than we did 30 years ago. And so you have to make sure that the thinking that goes into developing drugs is following along with that. You don't forget the old lessons, you build on them and you learn from them. So tell us about your team. Uh, My team is fabulous. (laughs) I don't have any other way to say it. Um, Sometimes I do choose people who who don't have uh, the amount of experience that another pharma company might look at them and say they don't know how to do X, Y, and Z. And instead, I'll look at how how did they approach the things that they've already done and that they're known for. And, you know, smart people know how to figure it out. When I was coming up, I was lucky, really lucky to get uh, people to just let me try things, even though I didn't know how to do them. In my first company, they didn't like to hire expensive people. And so they gave me sort of free reign to be involved in a lot of things. And I just thought, okay, 
let's see what I can do and I'll figure it out. That's always, always what I look for in people is will they figure it out? And smart people will always try to find a way to figure it out and won't go with the flow. So learn from your mistakes. I presume that's a big part of it. You you can't can't progress unless you make a few mistakes and you learn from them. They're hard lessons sometimes, but brutal. Yeah. Yeah, they're brutal. And I, I've made a few mistakes and I've I've learned from them. And sometimes it's just brutal as, as you continue to move through. Uh, but I have this personal philosophy that people who lead, whether they're men or women, there's um, you don't seek it out. Some people seek out dominance and that's not leadership. Dominance is just dominance. Who's got the loudest voice in the room? I never felt like I had the loudest voice in the room. I'm a, I'm a small person. Uh, my voice in the room can be relatively quiet. But I think it's the way that you work with people and you try to inspire people to be their best at their craft. And you show them sometimes a different path. That's not the same path everyone else is using. But the way you do it, I don't even know that we pick our path to be leaders. It... Um, it just happens and it's not it's, it's, uh, listening. I always think listening is a really important part of it, you know, being open and listening. Would you agree? Absolutely. As I mentioned, I spent a year and a half listening to people going to Alzheimer meeting after Alzheimer meeting after Alzheimer meeting and listening, 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 and not even trying to formulate my thoughts. I wanted to hear what the people who were speaking in public and who were considered to be opinion leaders, I wanted to know what they were saying. And then I wanted to quietly weigh it and analyze it and reach my own opinion about which parts did I want to extract, which parts did I think were not necessarily uh, so so great. And um, yeah, there's a lot of listening involved. Do you think that women bring a different perspective or approach in leadership, not necessarily better or worse, but just different? I do. I do. And I think that that may, you know, sort of go way back into the history of civilization. I think that uh, by and large women, we are the smaller uh, we're not going to survive based on brute strength and the dominance theories. What we're going to survive on is based sometimes on our ability to cajole, sometimes on our ability to outsmart, sometimes uh, on a lot of different ways of handling people. And sometimes it's a matter of looking at a more dominant player, seeing what is it that they need out of the interaction. And you can't tell me that a mother with children doesn't know how to figure out, you know, how to deal with those situations where you've got a group of people fighting and you've got to sort it out. Uh, Personally, I don't have children, so I cannot draw from that marvelous experience. But you do spend a lot of time realizing that you can't go in and dominate all situations. You have to find a better way. And the best way to make that successful is find a way where just pretty much everyone can come out feeling like they didn't lose much. Maybe they lost something, but not much. And uh, the people who have done things that you let them know that on the celebratory parade, there is room for everybody. You know, you don't have one leader out front taking all the glory. You bring everyone from your team up on the celebration float with you and celebrate together. And that uh, I saw that leadership in action when I was quite young in the industry. 
And I watched this person lead that way. And I watched the accomplishments of the team. And I always, always kept that in mind that that no team is any better than the people who are really slugging along and they're making things happen. Are you optimistic about the future of uh, care and pharma and what can be done for people with Alzheimer's and their families and their carers? I am fabulously optimistic. Part of that has to do with um, the data from Azai's Lacanumab that came out where the studies were extraordinarily well done and the error bars were tiny, tiny because the the studies were so extraordinarily well done. I'd like to hope that my legacy had something to do with the quality of those studies, but you know, Azai is just a super company anyway, and I don't think that they would do anything halfway. But what that study showed in an unequivocal manner is that, yes, if you start removing plaques and tangles early on, not later in the disease, but early on before the disease gets too serious, you can turn back the clock for those patients. And it appears to be about six months. So that is is just fantastic news. And they're the first people to do it so convincingly. Are there issues with those treatments? Yes, no treatment is ever going to be perfect. I'm conscious that we're getting near to the end of the time, but I really want to wrap it up by asking you some questions that I ask a lot of um, women, uh, wonderful women like yourself who take part in the podcast. And what is like from your, your career, your very impressive career, what would you say are your five pearls of wisdom? You know, some of the things you've talked about there already, what would you say your five pearls of wisdom would be? Be determined. You must be determined. Be resilient. Not easy. You, yeah, there will be disappointments. There will be uh, things that happen that just sort of reduce you to rubble. And you've just got to go back, renew your energy stores and go back out to it. Um, Be a good listener. Because a lot of times the things you're listening to may give you keys into how to operate in a certain environment and to be successful in a current environment. Uh, Be open-minded. Because if you can't learn what other people's objections are to a pathway or what their their the good things about a new pathway are, if you can't appreciate those things, you can't make good decisions yourself. And then finally, um, when you do have something that you think is right, that you've analyzed, that you've taken it apart as much as you can, and you believe you are right, uh, don't give up on it. You don't necessarily have to get in fights with people about it, but you can be dogged and determined on your own as as you push the path forward. And in every interaction, you try to find another way to adjust people to your perspective. Perspective is is sort of an evasive um, uh, element of any interaction, but you have to be able to appreciate the perspectives of others if you're going to try to show them why yours is better. So those are probably the five things I'd add a six, which is don't be mean to people. Don't be rude. Don't be brutish. It, it helps nothing whatsoever. The worst people in the world, in your own impression, uh, you can still manage to you yourself behave in a manner that promotes civility in the workplace, that promotes reason dialogue. And that's a wonderful thing to finish up with, really. Um, I have a niece who, who you know, captures that in a phrase is you catch more flies with sugar. <laughs> and I think it's 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 very important. You, you get so much further with people if you're nice and if you're polite. Um, financial advice. 
I think women don't often think enough about their own finances and their money and their how they provide for themselves. What would you say is the best bit of financial or monetary advice you ever got? To do my own homework. And so that's not always fun. It can be rather tedious, but do your own homework and don't blindly take the advice of other people. It's, it's your money. This is your life. And if you want to be independent, if you want to make sure that you're never in a position where you're beholden to someone else to put a roof over your head and food in your mouth, make sure that you learn about finance. Make sure you're very well versed in finance. I, I don't turn my portfolio over to some advisor and let them blindly invest for me. I want to know what all the investments are. I want to understand them and the underlying companies. And I also want to be very mindful about the fact that I can't be an expert in all of this. I can't. These people do this 24 hours a day. There's much I don't understand. So I try to keep uh, my financial world in a place where I'm pretty confident I understand what's happening with it. Environment, social and governments, this new phrase, ESG, we keep hearing about it. Um, Do you think that matters? Is the environment particularly important to you? Absolutely. So there's the environment just from the climate change perspective, the cleanliness perspective, our air. If we don't live in an environment where we can function optimally, nothing is going to function optimally. You can see the difference just when in an overheated room about how reasonable people are when you're trying to have business discussions. Sometimes you can't think straight or if people are are cold or if people are hungry or if people don't have clean water to drink. These things all matter because it's the only way we can have any type of good in civil society um, is, is when people can think straight. And this all happens when we're more comfortable in our environment. Uh, Before we go, what is your go-to song? (laughs) Lady Gaga, Born This Way. Sharon, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And you've certainly been a a wonderful example of a clear, strategic thinker yourself. So uh, on behalf of the Women Leadership Podcast, I'd like to thank you for taking part and for sharing your expertise and your knowledge with us. Thank you. My thanks to Dr. Sharon Rogers, the guest on this episode of the Women in Leadership podcast. Keep active, keep exercising those muscles and brain cells and stay stimulated. That's definitely going to help your brain health. Well, if you like what you hear on the podcast, do like and follow and share wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you have any suggestions for leaders you'd like to hear more from, you can contact us on the website womeninleadership.ie. On Twitter, we're at Leading Women Pod, and you can also contact us through LinkedIn. Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti, and all on the Women in Leadership podcast team, goodbye and talk soon. Mm-hmm.